And Lord, this morning, uh, we gather together, every single person in this room, every single one of us made in your image, every single one of us failed to properly represent your image to the world around us, to each other, to creation. Um, we've all soiled. We've all soiled your perfect creation. And because of your sacrifice, every single one of us um, comes together under, under your coverage, uh, redeemed, um, filled with your Holy Spirit, and we all get to stand back on your cornerstone. So Jesus, thank you. We worship you and honor you this morning as we open your word to hear from you and, and to understand you more, that we might keep our feet better on that cornerstone. We ask that you would find soft hearts um, seeking your name this morning. Yes, it's in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. If you missed uh, announcements, my name is BJ. I'm a staff pastor here. And before Mike comes up and, and teaches, um, he asked if I would read a little uh, scripture over us this morning. So I'll read this over Mike and over the rest of us. This is from Psalm 31, verses 21 through 24. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his faithful love to me. In a city under siege, in my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the sound of my pleading when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all his faithful ones. The Lord protects the loyal, but fully repays the arrogant. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. All you who put your hope in the Lord. Thanks, BJ. Good morning again, you guys. Isn't it cool to be here? <laughs> I just like, sometimes I look at the faces and it's like, I just, I just love church. I love being around church people. You guys are so encouraging to me. Thank you for um, just being family. And even watching you guys interact with each other on Sunday mornings is such a blessing to me. Just watching you guys talk and hang out and spend time together. Um, you guys are just an incredible church family to be a part of. So thank you for that. And um, Let's open our Bibles together this morning. Let's look at the Word. Mark chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 32. And as you're finding Mark 10, 32 to begin, I just want to um, remind everyone, if you've been here recently or if you, maybe you've missed recently, um, there's a road trip that's been happening. And it began in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus and the disciples have been making the trek south. They've stopped off in the Galilee region and came down into the region of Perea. And then they've now started to journey away from the, the Jordan region, the, the River Jordan, which would be to the east of Jerusalem. And they're leaving the Jordan region, now heading for Jerusalem. They're going to pass through Jericho, as we'll see next week in route. And that's a very common road that was taken. Uh, if you were going to travel even from the north, a lot of times you would travel down that Jordan Valley and you would cross over at Jericho and then come up to Jerusalem, approaching it from the east, going west. And this road to Jerusalem is getting more serious with every step that's being taken. The weight's being felt more and more as they go. And as we'll see right at the onset of the text, it takes a lot of courage to put one foot in front of the other in the direction that not only Jesus and the disciples, but his followers are going. Um, the, the weight is getting heavier with every step. 
And I think at that juncture, as I was reading this this week, it just occurred to me that there really are two kinds of courage. Um, there's the courage, which is kind of like an instinctive reaction to something. Um, and we've seen that happen where it's like a reflex. It's the courage of someone who's confronted out of the blue with a crisis, and they just respond courageously to that situation. You know, it's the mother who has little Timmy under the car, and I'll get you! She just like lifts the car and gets the child out. You know, it's like, there's just courage there. It's courageous and, and also freakishly strong. And so many have performed acts of great bravery in the heat of the moment. You know, it's this, this moment that just happens upon them. They didn't have time to prepare, and great courage came out of that reaction. But there's also a courage, and it's the kind that we're going to see Jesus exemplifying here, especially the closer they get to Jerusalem. It's the kind of courage that you see in someone who knows what's coming. They see what's coming next. They see the action and the activity that they're going to have to go through. They have plenty of time to turn back. And if they choose, they could evade the issue. But instead, they continue to go on and they go step by step closer to this thing that they know is going to be more and more difficult the closer they get. That's the second kind of courage. That you knowingly continue to go towards the thing that you have chosen to do. The known deliberate facing of the future. This is the courage that we see Jesus walking out before our eyes in this text. Jesus is going step by step closer to what the Father had sent him to do. And the task wouldn't be easy, but its completed work will be victory. Yet Jesus knows that every step closer is leading him to this. He embraced the posture of what the psalmist wrote that we just had read over us in Psalm 31, 24. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Notice what it says. All you who put your hope in the Lord. You see, Jesus isn't putting his hope in anything less than the Father. His hope is in the task that the Father has given him and that he must fulfill it. His hope is in what the Father has told him that he would do. And so... As we think about that, it gives a lot of weight and it gives a lot of understanding as to why Jesus now at the beginning of our text will for the third time predict his death for the disciples. So let's get into the text this morning. We're going to take it in three sections. The first section being verses 32 through 34 and it reads this way. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve aside, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. The scene is striking. Jesus up ahead walking by himself initially. Jesus is up ahead of the crowd, just intentionally setting his face towards Jerusalem. You have the next group behind him, the disciples, who are just amazed. They're in amazement at him, and no doubt considering all his teachings, all the things that we've read up until this point as this journey began way back in Caesarea Philippi. They're, they're just amazed at what Jesus is doing. They're in awe of him. And then you have the crowds, who are even further, a little bit more separated, and they're afraid. They're afraid of what they're doing. 
there's power in Jesus and there's an awe amongst them, but there's no delusion about what he's walking towards. Considering the three dominating world powers that are present in Jerusalem at this time, he's not walking towards anything easy. And they all know, they all know how these three powers feel about Jesus. The three world powers in Jerusalem are these. There's the tyrannical and military government of Rome that was represented there. The ultimate power in charge. They were the ones that did all the pushing. They pushed whatever they wanted to. They got what they wanted. And then there was the intellectualism and the commercially prosperous Greek mindset or Grecian mindset where it was the Gentile way of thinking of the time. And so you had the secularism and the intellectualism, the commercially prosperous Greeks, the tyrannical military government of the Romans. But there was another there was another group that was against Jesus, and that was definitely not for him, and that was the degenerate religion of Jerusalem. And it's interesting to, to refer to the Judaism of that time as being degenerate, but when you think about what they're going to do to Jesus, how could we call it anything but degenerate? Think of what temple worship had become. Jesus, for the second time in his earthly ministry, is going to flip tables in Jerusalem because they're stealing from people in the temple. They're taking advantage of them. And think about what the teaching and what the instruction of the scribes and the Pharisees had become. Think about what the religious establishment was teaching at that time, and was it in any way what the Scriptures taught? Was it in any way what Jesus taught? If it was, I don't think he'd have as much conflict with them as as he did on a regular basis. And these three world forces, if you will, are waiting for him. In Jerusalem, and step by step, Jesus courageously, in the latter definition of courage, is setting his face towards them. He's walking right into the thick of it, knowing that they're waiting there with a unified goal of silencing him and destroying him. We'll see at the end of our study this morning what the true motivating purpose of this journey is. Jesus will define it himself. But we have to take a moment and be amazed along with the disciples as we look at Christ and we just think about his ambition. He approaches Jerusalem with ambition. And I think that that strikes me so much because the ambition was for the glory of God. It was for the good pleasure of God. And it was to accomplish the purposes of God. The ambition of Jesus was not self-motivated. The ambition of Jesus was to glorify the Father no matter what it took. His determination is revealed by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 50, verse 7, which says, The Lord God will help me, therefore I have not been humiliated, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. It doesn't matter what the odds look like. It doesn't matter what the amount of conflict looks like. If we have set our face to do what God has called us to do. Humiliation is not what awaits us. We will not be put to shame before the one that matters most, and that is our Heavenly Father. The resurrection will be the ultimate victory, but before the resurrection, there has to be death. And this is what Jesus reveals to the 12. In verse 33, we read this. He said, see, we're going to Jerusalem. Obviously, they know this, and he says, that's where we're ending. We're not going to stop short. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests, the scribes. They will condemn him to death. 
And notice the detail that he hasn't provided in the prior two revelations of his suffering and his predictions of his death to the disciples. He has not gone into the detail that he does in verse 34. In verse 34, he gives far more detail than he has up to this point. And he says they're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to flog him and kill him. And he says, and he will rise. Jesus says, I will rise three days later. The father will vindicate him, but only after he's handed over, mocked, spit on, whipped, and crucified. This is Jesus' most detailed prediction of his death. And what's beautiful, church, is that even though, I think we have to remember this in this context, especially going forward in this text, even though there there's a mix of like astonishment, amazement, even some bewilderment, some fear. What are the people doing? They're continuing to follow him. They're still with him. Sometimes we can look at this and be like, oh man, why are they afraid? Well, clearly there were things to be afraid of, right? It's like walking into a lion's den and not having a little bit of fear in you. Something's wrong, right? You should be afraid. There's fear there, but they continue to follow him. They continue to come after him. And we'll see this as James and John are about to show us. They're confused about what's going to happen. And despite the clarity of the Lord's explanation, despite all of that, they still follow him. They're still with him. They love Jesus so much that they're compelled to accept what they cannot understand. Did you catch that? We need to be so in love with Jesus that we are compelled to accept what we cannot understand. We have to be compelled to accept that the Lord knows what he's doing and that my best place, the place where I belong, is still right there with him. It's still to walk with him through everything that he's called me to do because he has promised not to leave us or forsake us. He's with us. It continues on in verse 35. This is the second section. And James and John approach Jesus. It says, The sons of Zebedee approach him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. For much of my life, I have to admit, when I read this story, I, I felt like the other ten. Right? The other 10 disciples are like, Psh, we'll see it in a minute. It actually says that in the text. Psh, said Peter. No, I'm just kidding. But like, we, we, we feel that way towards, towards James and John. At least I did. I, I would always feel that way towards James and John. Like, what are they doing? You know, power grabbing. But you guys, the, it seems like the two brothers are playing for power of the others, but I'm, I'm not so sure anymore. I'm not so sure anymore. It seems that we read a selfish motivation into them and forget that within their request, they don't refer to sitting at either side of Jesus in their glory. Did you notice that? Whose glory did they refer to? They said, let us sit on your right and your left in your glory. 
Now, there's some key things about this, and, and, and it could be that there was selfish, selfish motivation here. I just think if you read the text and you look at it carefully, it's not as a surefire win as we might think it is. And what's interesting about this for me is that it's true that the right side was the highest honor and the left was the second highest, and maybe they were requesting this with selfish intent. I just don't think we can say that's the case with complete certainty without considering that even though they don't understand fully what Jesus is about to go through in Jerusalem, they're still with him regardless of that understanding. And they believe in him so completely that even though three times he has told them he will die, they fully believe he's going to reign. They fully believe that he's going on to be the king of glory. They don't think anything can stop him. They're so sure of it. They're like, we would like to reserve our seats, please. Right? I mean, like, (laughs) they're just trying to get reserved seating. You're like, yeah, places of honor. Maybe, but they just want to be close to Jesus. Could we look at it that way too? Maybe James and John just want to be right next to the Lord. Isn't that an honorable thing? Isn't that a cool thing if you think about it? It's like, I want to be right with Jesus. How close can I get? Well, sitting next to him is pretty close, right? Where was John in the upper room further on down the road? Where was he? Seated next to Jesus with his head on him. That's pretty close. Could it be that that's exactly what they're asking for? Lord, when you are the king, can we sit close to you? I want to be near you. We recognize, and I think that regardless of how we view the disciples in this moment, I think we should grab hold of their full assurance and their full belief that Jesus will be victorious no matter what awaits him. How encouraging is that for us when we think about our circumstances, what we're going to, and we realize, you realize Jesus wins, right? No matter what. Like Jesus already won, we're just waiting for him to come back and take the throne, right? And so, so often we're like, oh, this, oh, it's so bad. And I fall to this. Like, I get stuck looking at the negative. I become that pessimist I preach against. That's why it's all so hard to study. Because I'll study and be like, oh, this is me. I'm so pessimistic sometimes. And Jesus is like, you realize I win, right? Why aren't you more focused on that? Why don't you have your eyes set forward with courage, walking towards the thing I've called you to, because you know I'm going to be victorious. Because you know who led them an example more than anyone else to believe this way. Jesus himself. They were watching him. And where words, this is where the understanding comes in. They didn't understand, right? Clearly the disciples experienced some confusion. And we do too. So what was going to teach them? Where words were powerless to rid them of the ideas that they had of what the Messiah had been sent to do. According to their culture and their upbringing, they had this picture of a Messiah. And even here, they're, they're alluding to that. They're not really thinking about the suffering. They're like, no matter what, you're going to be king. You're going to be sitting on your throne. And when you think about that, that's, that's the Jewish picture of who Jesus is, of who the Messiah is. And that's who they believe Jesus to be. But where the words that he would speak to them about the suffering, about the cross about the difficulty didn't seem to have much power in giving them understanding as to what they were about to go through, the cross and the empty tomb was going to teach them. The cross and the empty tomb teach us so much about how to view the rest of life. 
They teach us so much about how to view the words of Scripture when we come to the cross and then we see the empty tomb. That is the perspective we are to see every moment of our life through. When they saw the cross, when they saw the empty tomb, when they saw a risen Savior, then they would indeed drink from the cup that Jesus drank from. Then they would be baptized with the baptism that he was baptized with. They were going to experience what Jesus is referring to. He's using a metaphor. When he says, can you drink from the cup? He's not talking about a cup that he would take a drink out of and hand to them. He's talking about the experience that God gives to people in life. It's a commonly used metaphor. You can see it used in the Psalms. You see Jesus use it in the garden. When he's praying to the Father and he's deeply distressed in Mark 14, 36, we'll get to this soon. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The cup speaks of the experience that's allotted to people by God. And so when he says, can you drink from the cup that I drink from? He says, can you go through the experience that God has allotted for you in this life? Similarly, he asked them if they can be baptized with the same baptism. And don't think dipping Don't think like the water baptism that might come to mind right away. Think about this. The word that he used for baptism here means to be submerged. Basically, it means to be submerged into something. And that word is used for the experience of life as well. Are you ready to be submerged into the situation that I'm about to be submerged into? In other words, the question is, can you be submerged in the same treatment as I am about to face? Whether their intention was selfish or not, the lesson Jesus taught them and us is the same. Without the cross, there cannot be a crown. And the standard of greatness in the kingdom is the standard of the cross. It's not power. The standard of greatness is the cross. James, in the end, was beheaded for the name of Jesus by Herod Agrippa. John, although likely not martyred, they tried. Rumor has it he was boiled in oil. But he would suffer much for the name of Jesus. And the Lord was, of course, correct in his affirmation of the cup and the baptism that they would experience. And even in light of that, he reveals that God will decide who receives places of honor. Some people would look at that and be like, well, since I can have the cup and since I can be submerged, do we have an accord? Right? (laughs) But that's not how it works. Jesus says, even so, it's not my place to give. I don't give out positions of honor in that way. It's up to the Father. And we're to understand that we ought to find contentment in that. The understanding is contentment that if I can go through these things, through His power, that eternal life is what awaits. Eternal life is the reward. Jesus speaks to this in our final section. Here in verse 41. As He continues on now, I think the ten disciples responded how we might respond similarly. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even, this is, sorry, this may be, one of the most important verses in the Gospel of Mark. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Bad leadership is overpowering, excessively authoritative, domineering. As Jesus says here, it's tyrannical. It's interesting how many who grow up despising that type of leadership are tempted to become or become the thing that they despised. Isn't it interesting how often we've had experience with leadership like that that really terribly affected us and we're tempted to fall to that when God gives us a position of leadership. It requires constant humility. It it requires a constant awareness of who we actually are and a willing to be broken and a willingness to come forward and apologize for wrongs, to recognize our insufficiency without Christ. Jesus calls the ten who are upset over to himself and addresses the twelve as one and says, this isn't the way it's supposed to be among you. This isn't the way it's going to work for you guys. In the kingdom of Jesus, the standard is that of service. He says greatness will be defined by service. Greatness consists not in reducing others to one's service, but in reducing oneself to their service. The test is not what service can I extract, but what service can I give? What can I give? What can I bring? In the kingdom of the world, the standard of greatness has always been power. But our king has told us that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to exchange his life for us. To exchange his life and the ones who had given themselves to sin and become hostages to it. Our king stepped down from glory, called himself almost exclusively son of man, and exchanged his life for ours. That is loving service to the extreme. That is courage beyond a momentary blast of courage that's required in a moment of unforeseen danger or unforeseen circumstances. The intent for God to express this loving service, this courageous loving service to his creation began in Genesis 3. It began, you could say, probably before that because God knew how everything was going to play out and he still made us. And he knew from that point, of course, what it was going to require for him to redeem us. And he still did it. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves me. He still did it regardless. Church, we long for true fellowship with our king, don't we? We really want like deep, intimate relationship and fellowship with with Christ. Fellowship with him is to be found in serving. That's where we come alongside him and we do the work in this world that he's given us to do in the way that he did it. It's through that loving service. When we serve our families at home, when we serve our church families, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, when we're constantly looking for opportunities to give rather than to take. Jesus practically will demonstrate this for us in the final section of this chapter in a moment when we could be so easily preoccupied with where we're going that we don't see the people who are on the pathway there. Give you a little teaser for BJ's sermon next week. He's going to talk about Bartimaeus. On the road through Jericho, Jesus is going to stop off and heal someone. 
because he cares about this person. He's not going to miss opportunities to do the will of the Father, even though the cross looms ahead and everything that that would entail. If we're prepared to share in the cup with him the experience of life that God allotted to the Son and calls all his followers to drink from, then we fellowship with him by becoming servants of all. And seeking out opportunities, not letting anything get by us. How can I bless somebody today? How can I serve someone today? How can I pour myself out for this person? If we're prepared to be submerged in the same baptism as Jesus spoke of, then no situation or treatment can sway us from serving in the way that he does. Nothing should stop us. Thus, the Son of Man reveals the foundation of his kingdom in these verses. It's a loving service. And when those in need required a life to be given so that they might be saved, then loving service unto death. You see, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what he's called us to do, church. He's called us to come and serve, and if required, serve to the giving up of our life. This morning, we have an opportunity to take communion together. And as we approach the table, and as the communion elements are going to be handed out to you this morning, we talk about communion a lot. We talk about remembering Christ. But I think in our Western mindset, we think of remembering Christ as like a mental recollection. We're going to remember that he died. I'm going to remember that he did this and that. But if you do a little bit of study, you'll realize that remembering in the Jewish mindset was different than that. To remember something didn't mean to mentally recall it. It was different in the Jewish, the ancient Jewish understanding. In the Jewish world, remembrance was not purely mental. It wasn't about bringing nostalgia in from the past. It was about asking God to remember his people and complete his saving purpose now. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, That is the way he's referring to communion. That when we take communion, we are asking for God to pour his spirit into us and complete his saving purpose in us today. What a beautiful thing for us to partake together as a church family in the light of Jesus' example of not coming to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. In the ancient world, remembrance wasn't merely the mental recollection of past events. It meant recalling a past event so that the power of that event may enter the present. That's what communion is. That's what taking the bread and the cup together is. When Jesus said this to us, we ought to take it to heart that we're not, we're not receiving an edible history lesson. That's not what this is. This is about the power of Christ alive and at work in his body, the church. Amen? That's what we need. And that's what, that's what communion is. And I want us to just consider this. I want us to pray for each other in this. I want us to come together when we do this. So as the worship team comes up, and as those who are going to hand out communion, if you guys want to come forward, I just want to read the passage that we often read to, to think about and to consider, but I want us to really be mindful that through remembrance, we are asking for the power, God's saving power, to be alive and at work and to be leading us forward as a church. And so 
I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I'm going to read this passage, and I'll pray. And then while they distribute, we'll, we'll sing and, and worship the Lord for a moment. We read from Scripture that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Lord, as we pray very intentionally this morning that you would unify us as your body. As we think about communion, we take these these two elements, the bread and the cup, we take them into our body. And Lord, we just recognize that this is such a striking moment for us to ask you, Holy Spirit, to come into us, to refresh us with the truth of the gospel, to refresh us with the power of the cross and the resurrection, to bind us together in you, and to mobilize us in this world. Lord, we have to be filled with you. And so as we come together, would you unify us through the table? Would you unify us through this remembrance where we ask, Lord God, that all the promises that you have made might be fulfilled through us, your church? Jesus, that you would bless this church. You would bless your people. We thank you, Lord, that you've promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. So, Lord, we ask for your power. We ask for your strength, and we recognize that in the world's view, power looks very different. True power, according to you, Jesus, is loving service. And so we ask, Lord, that you would engage us in the loving of you and one another through serving, through sacrifice. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Be glorified as we worship. We ask it in your name.